Chapter Five of the Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Wills. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter Five: An Accident and Its Consequences. Locomotives and telegraphy are mere snails compared to thought. Let us therefore use our advantage, reader, stride in advance of the 6.30 p.m. train, which, by the way, has now become a 7.45 p.m. train, and see what little Joseph Tipps is doing. There he stands, five feet four, in his highest-heeled boots, as sterling and warm-hearted a little man as ever breathed. He was writing at a little desk close to a large window, which, owing to the station being a temporary one and its roof low, was flimsy, and came nearer to the ground than most windows do. Mr. Tipps wrote somewhat nervously. He inherited his mother's weakness in this respect, and besides, his nerves had been a little shaken by the sudden illness with which his sister had been seized that day at his lodgings. Outside on the platform, a few people lounged, waiting the arrival of the expected train. Among them was one whose bulky frame and firm, strongly lined countenance spoke of much power to dare and do. He was considerably above the middle height, and somewhere about middle age. His costume was of that quiet, unobtrusive kind which seems to court retirement, and the sharp glance of his eyes seemed to possess something of the gimlet in their penetrating power. This was no less a personage than Mr. Sharp, the inspector of police on the Grand National Trunk Railway. Mr. Inspector Sharp had evidently an eye for the beautiful, for he stood at the farther extremity of the platform, gazing in rapt attention at the sun, which just then was setting in a flood of golden light. But Mr. Sharp had also a peculiar faculty for observing several things at once. Indeed, some of his friends, referring to this, were wont to remark that he was a perfect Argus, with eyes in his elbows and calves and back of his head. It would seem, indeed, that this, or something like it, must really have been the case, for he not only observed and enjoyed the sunset, but also paid particular attention to the conversation of two men who stood not far from him, and at the same time was cognizant of the fact that behind him, a couple of hundred yards or more up the line, a goods engine was engaged in shunting trucks. This process of shunting, we may explain, for the benefit of those who don't know, consists in detaching trucks from trains of goods and shoving them into sidings, so that they may be out of the way until their time comes to be attached to other trains, which will convey them to their proper destination, or to have their contents, if need be, unloaded and distributed among other trucks. Shunting is sometimes a tedious process, involving much hauling, pushing, puffing and whistling on the part of the engine, an uncoupling of trucks and shifting of points on the part of the pointsmen and porters. There is considerable danger, too, in the process, or rather there was danger before the introduction of the block system, which now, when it is adopted, renders accidents almost impossible, of which system more shall be said hereafter. The danger lies in this, that shunting has frequently to be done during intervals between the passing of passenger trains and on lines where passenger and goods traffic is very great, these intervals are sometimes extremely brief. But strange to say, this danger is the mother of safety. 
for the difficulty of conducting extensive traffic is so great that a combination of all but perfect systems of signalling, telegraphing and organisation is absolutely needful to prevent constant mishap. Hence the marvellous result that, in the midst of danger, we are in safety, and travelling by railway is really less dangerous than travelling by stagecoach used to be in days of old. Yes, timid reader, we assure you that if you travel daily by rail, your chances of coming to grief are very much fewer than if you were to travel daily by mail-coach. Facts and figures prove this beyond all doubt, so that we are entitled to take great comfort in it. The marvel is, not that loss of life is so great, but that it is so small. Do you doubt it, reader? Behold the facts and figures. Wonder, be thankful, and doubt no more. Captain Tyler's general report to the Board of Trade on Railway Accidents during the year 1870 tells us that the number of passengers killed on railways last year was 90. The number of passenger journeys performed was 307 millions, which gives, in round numbers, one passenger killed for every three and a half millions that travelled. In the best mail and stagecoaching days, the yearly number of travellers was about two millions. The present railway death rate, applied to this number, amounts to a little more than one-half of a unit. Will anyone out of Bedlam have the audacity to say that, in coaching days, only half a passenger was killed each year? We leave facts to speak for themselves, and common sense to judge whether men were safer then than they are now. But to return, when Mr. Sharp was looking at the distant wagons that were being shunted, he observed that the engine which conducted the operation was moved about with so much unnecessary fuss and jerking that he concluded it must be worked by a new, or at all events, a bad driver. He shook his head, therefore, pulled out his watch, and muttered to himself that it seemed to him far too near the time of the arrival of a train to make it safe to do such work. The calculations, however, had been made correctly, and the train of trucks would have been well out of the way if the driver had been a smarter man. Even as things stood, however, there should have been no danger, because the distance signal was turned to danger, which thus said to any approaching train, Stop for your life! But here occurred one of these mistakes, or pieces of carelessness or thoughtlessness, to which weak and sinful human nature is, and we suppose always will be, liable. Perhaps the signalman thought the goods train had completed its operation, or fancied that the express was not so near as it proved to be. Or he got confused, we cannot tell. There is no accounting for such things. But whatever the cause, he turned off the danger signal half a minute too soon, and set the line free. Suddenly the down-train came tearing round the curve. It was at reduced speed, certainly, but not sufficiently reduced to avoid a collision with the trucks on a part of the line where no truck should be. Our friend John Marrett was on the lookout, of course, and so was his mate. They saw the trucks at once. Like lightning, John shut off the steam, and at the same instant touched his whistle several sharp shrieks, which was the alarm to the guard to turn on his brakes. No men could have been more prompt or cool. Joe Turner and Will Garvey had on full brake power in a second or two. At the same time, John Marrett, instantly reversing the engine, let on full steam, but all in vain. Fire flew in showers from the shrieking wheels. The friction on the rails must have been tremendous. Nevertheless, the engine dashed into the goods train like a thunderbolt, with a stunning crash and a noise that is quite indescribable. 
The police superintendent, who was all but run over, stood for a few seconds aghast at the sight and at the action of the engine. Not satisfied with sending one of its own carriages into splinters, the iron horse made three terrific plunges or efforts to advance, and at each plunge a heavy truck full of goods was, as it were, poured under its wheels and driven out behind under the tender in the form of a mass of matchwood, all the goods, hard and soft, as well as the heavy frame of the truck itself, being minced up together in a manner that defies description. It seemed as though the monster had been suddenly endued with intelligence, and was seeking to vent its horrid rage on the thing that had dared to check its pace. Three loaded trucks it crushed down, overran and scattered wide in this way, in three successive plunges, and then, rushing on a few yards among chaotic debris, turned slowly on its side and hurled the driver and the fireman over the embankment. The shock received by the people at the station was tremendous. Poor Tibbs, standing at his desk, was struck nervously as if by electricity. He made one wild, involuntary bolt right through the window as if it had been made of tissue paper, and did not cease to run until he found himself panting in the middle of a turnip field that lay at the back of the station. Turning round, ashamed of himself, he ran back faster than he had run away, and leaping recklessly among the debris, began to pull broken and jagged timber about, under the impression that he was rescuing fellow creatures from destruction. Strange to say, no one was killed on that occasion. No one was even severely hurt, except the driver, but of course this was not known at first, and the people who were standing about hurried with terrible forebodings to lend assistance to the passengers. Mr. Sharp seemed to have been smitten with feelings somewhat similar to those of Tibbs, for without knowing very well how or why, he suddenly found himself standing up to the armpits in debris, heaving might and main at masses of timber. Hello! Lift away this beam, will you? shouted a half-smothered voice close beside him. It came from beneath the carriage that we have described as having been broken to splinters. Sharp was a man of action. He hailed a porter near him, and began with energy and power to tear up and hurl aside the boards. Presently, on raising part of the broken framework of the carriage, a man struggled to his feet, and, wiping away the blood that flowed from a wound in his forehead, revealed the countenance of Edwin Gurwood to the astonished tips. "'What, Edwin!' he exclaimed. "'I don't just stand there, man. Your mother is in the train.' Poor Tips could not speak. He could only grasp the word. Where? In a third class behind. There it is. Safe, I see. His friend at once leapt towards the vehicle pointed out, but Edwin did not follow. He glanced wildly around in search of another carriage. You are hurt, Mr. Garwood. If I mistake not, lean on me, said Mr. Sharp. It's nothing, oh, only a scratch. Ha! There's the carriage. Follow me cried Edwin, struggling towards a first-class carriage, which appeared considerably damaged, though it had not left the rails. He wrenched open the door, and springing in, found Captain Lee striving in vain to lift his daughter, who had fainted. Edwin stooped, raised her in his arms, and kicking open the door on the opposite side, leapt down, followed by the captain. They quickly made their way to the station, where they found most of the passengers, hurt and unhurt, already assembled with two doctors who chanced to be on the train, attending to them. Edwin laid his light burden tenderly on a couch, 
and one of the doctors immediately attended to her. While he was applying restoratives, Mr. Blunt touched Edwin on the elbow and requested him to follow him. With a feeling of sudden anger, Gerwood turned round, but before he could speak, his eye fell on Mrs. Tipps, who sat on a bench leaning on her son's breast, looking deadly pale but quite composed. "'My dear Mrs. Tipps!' exclaimed the youth, stepping hastily forward. "'I hope, I trust—' "'Oh, Edwin, thank you, my dear fellow!' cried Joseph, grasping his hand and shaking it. "'She is not hurt. Thank God! Not even a scratch, only a little shaken. Fetch a glass of water. You'll find one in the booking office.' Gerbert ran out to fetch it. As he was returning, he met Captain Lee leading his daughter out of the waiting-room. "'I sincerely hope that your daughter is not hurt,' he said in earnest tones. "'Perhaps a little water might—' "'No, thank you,' said the captain somewhat stiffly. "'The carriage is waiting, sir,' said a servant in livery, coming up at the moment and touching his hat. Emma looked at Edwin for a second, and with a slight but perplexed smile of acknowledgment passed on. Next moment the carriage drove away, and she was gone. Edwin at the same time became aware of the fact that the pertinacious Blunt was at his side. Walking quickly into the waiting-room, he presented the glass of water to Mrs. Tipps. But to his surprise, that eccentric lady rose hastily and said, "'Thank you, Mr. Gerwood. Many thanks, but I am better. Come, Joseph, let's hasten to our darling Netta. Have you sent for a fly?' "'There's one waiting, mother. Take my arm. "'Many, many thanks for your kindness in coming with a Gerwood,' said Tips. "'I can't ask you to come with me just now. I—' "'The rest of his speech was lost in consequence of the impatient old lady dragging her son away. "'But what had been heard of it was sufficient to fill Mr. Blunt with surprise and perplexity. "'Well, Blunt,' said Mr. Superintendent Sharp, coming up at the moment, "'what has brought you here?' The detective related his story privately to his superior, and remarked that he began to fear there must be some mistake. <laughs> yes, there is a mistake of some sort, said Sharp with a laugh, for I have met him frequently at Clatterby Station, and know him to be a friend of Mr. Tipps. You've done your duty, Blunt. You can now leave the gentleman to me. Saying which, she went up to Edwin, and entered into an undertoned conversation with him, during which it might have been observed that Edwin looked a little confused at times and Mr. Sharp seemed not a little amused. <laughs> "'Well, it's all right,' he said at last. "'We have telegraphed for a special train to take on the passengers who wish to proceed, and you can go back if you choose in the up train, which is about due. It will be able to get past in the course of half an hour. Fortunately, the rails on the up line are not damaged, and the wreck can soon be cleared.' Just then the dandy, with the sleepy eyes and long whiskers, sauntered up to the porter on duty, with an unconcerned and lazy air. He had received no further injury than a shaking, and therefore felt that he could afford to affect a cool and not easy-to-be-ruffled demeanour. "'Ah, porter,' said he, twirling his watch-key, "'when do you expect another twain to take us on?' "'I don't know, sir. Probably half an hour.' "'Ah, oh, deuced awkward. My friend has got the bridge of his nose damaged, besides some sort of internal injury.' and won't be able to attend business to-night, I fear. Doost awkward. Do you hear that? whispered Sharp to Gerwood, as the thwind in question, he, with the check trousers, sauntered past, holding a handkerchief to his nose. 
I know, by the way in which that was said, that there will be something more heard some day hence of our foppin' jacks. Just come and stand with me in the doorway of the waiting-room, and listen to what some of the other passengers are saying.' "'Very odd,' observed a middle-aged man with a sour countenance, who did not present the appearance of one who had sustained any injury at all. "'Very hard, this. I shall miss a meeting with a friend, and perhaps lose doing a good stroke of business to-night.' "'Be thankful you haven't lost your life,' said Will Garvey, who supported the head of his injured mate. "'Mayhap I have lost my life, young man,' replied the other sharply. "'Eternal injuries from accidents often prove fatal, and don't always show at first. I've had a severe shake.' Here the sour-faced man shook himself slightly, partly to illustrate and partly to prove his point. "'Well, you're quite right, sir.' replied an Irishman, who had a bandage tied round his head, but who did not appear to be much, if at all, the worse for the accident. "'It's a disgrace entirely that the railway should be allowed to try it us in this fashion. If it only go to the trouble and expense of having proper signals on the lines, there'd be nothing of this kind, and if government would make a law to have an armchair fitted up front, of every locomotive and a director made to travel with such train, we'd hear of few accidents.' But it's myself. I'll come down on em for heavy damages for this. He pointed to his bandaged head and nodded with a significant glance at the company. A gentleman in a blue travelling cap, who had hitherto said nothing, and who turned out to have received severer injuries than any other passenger, here looked up impatiently and said, It appears to me that there is a great deal of unjust and foolish talk against railway companies, as if they any more than other companies, could avoid accidents. The system of signalling on a great part of this line is the best that has been discovered up to this date, and it is being applied to the whole line as fast as circumstances will warrant. But you can't expect to attain perfection in a day. What would you have? How can you expect to travel at the rate you do, and yet be as safe as if you were in one of the old mail coaches? Right, sir, you're right! cried John Marrott energetically, raising himself a little from the bench on which he lay. Right in saying we shouldn't try to expect perfection, but wrong in supposing the old mail coaches were safer. Why, railways is safer. They wouldn't stand no comparison. Here have I been driving on this here line for the last eight year, and only to come to grief three times and killed no more than two people. There ain't an old coach going or gone as could say as much. And when you come to consider that in them eight years I've been going more than two-thirds a time at an average of forty miles an hour, off and on, all night, almost as well as all day, and run thousands and thousands of miles, besides carrying millions of passengers, well, more or less, it do seem most ridiculous to go for to say that coaches were safer than railways. The reverse being the truth. Turn me round a bit, Bill, or uh, so that'll do. It's the bad leg I come down on, else I shouldn't have been so hard up. Yes, sir, as you truly remark, railway companies ain't fairly dealt with by no means. At this point, the attention of the passengers was attracted by a remarkably fat woman, who had hitherto laid quietly on a couch, breathing in a somewhat stertorous manner. One of the medical men had been so successful in his attention to her as to bring her to a state of consciousness. Indeed, she had been more or less in this condition for some times past, but feeling rather comfortable than otherwise and dreamy, 
she had laid still and enjoyed herself. Being roused, however, to a state of activity by means of smelling salts, and hearing the doctor remark that, except for a shaking, she appeared to have sustained no injury, this stout woman deemed it prudent to go off into hysterics, and began by uttering a yell that would have put to shame a Comanche Indian, and did more damage, perhaps, to the nerves of her sensitive hearers than the accident itself. She followed it up by drumming heavily on the couch with her heels. Singularly enough, her yell was replied to by the whistle of the uptray that had been due for some time past. She retorted by a renewed shriek, and became frantic in her assurances that no power yet discovered, whether mechanical, moral, or otherwise, could or would ever persuade her to set foot again in a railway train. It was of no use to assure her that no one meant to exert such a power, even if he possessed it, that she was free to go where she pleased and whenever she felt inclined. The more that stout woman was implored to compose herself, the more she discomposed herself and everybody else, and the more she was besought to be calm, the more a great deal did she fill the waiting room with hysterical shrieks and fiendish laughter until at last everyone was glad to go out of the place and get into the train that was waiting to take them back to Clatterby. Then the stout woman became suddenly calm, and declared to a porter, who must have had a heart of stone, so indifferent was he to her woes, that she would be glad to proceed to the nearest hotel if he would be good enough to fetch her a fly. Hmm, said Mr. Sharp as he and young Gerwood entered a carriage together, after having seen John Marrot placed on a pile of rugs on the floor of a first-class carriage, there's been work brewing up for me to-night. Ah, what do you mean? asked Edwin. I mean that from various indications which I observed this evening, we are likely to have some little correspondence with the passengers of the 6.30 p.m. train. However, we're used to it. Well, perhaps we'll get not to mind it in course of time. We do all that we can to accommodate the public, fit up our carriages and stations in the best style, compatible with giving our shareholders a small dividend, carry them to and fro over the land at a little short of lightning speed, every day and all day and night too, for extremely moderate fares, and with excessive safety and exceeding comfort, enable them to live in the country and do business in the city, as well as afford facilities for visiting the very ends of the earth in a few days not to mention other innumerable blessings to which we run them, or which we run to them, and yet no sooner does a rare accident occur, as it will occur in every human institution, though it occurs less on railways than most other institutions, than down comes this ungrateful public upon us with indignant cries of disgraceful, and in many cases unreasonable demands for compensation. Such is life, said Gerwood with a smile. Oh, on the rail! added Superintendent Sharp with a sigh, as the whistle sounded, and the train moved slowly out of the station. End of chapter 5 An Accident and Its Consequences Recorded by Dave Wills From Preston, Lancashire, England